Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. And it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, just go to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply type your details in and we will happily send you a free copy of the latest edition. But today on The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio, I'm delighted to say I'm speaking to Dr. Gary Chapman. Dr. Chapman is best known for his New York Times best-selling book, The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Lasts. Dr. Chapman speaks to thousands of couples across the USA and beyond through his weekend marriage conferences. Him and his wife have two grown children and currently live in North Carolina, where he serves as Senior Associate Pastor of Calvary Baptist Church. And he's over in the UK at the moment to speak at various events. And I'm pleased to say Dr. Chapman joins me in the studio now. Well, thank you, Sam. Good to be with you. It's great to have you. And I should say right from the outset that I've personally loved and benefited so much from your book, The Five Love Languages. So it's really exciting to be delving into them on the show today. But just before we get there, we always like to hear about a person's life growing up. So tell me some yeah. of your early story. Oh, well, I grew up in North Carolina. Uh, thus, I have a Southern American accent. Uh, I uh, grew up in a Christian home. I went to church as long as I can remember. Uh, At 10 years of age, I realized I was not a Christian. I would have assumed I would have been. But, you know, you come to that stage where you recognize it's a personal thing. It's not what your parents did. It's something you have to do in responding to Christ. And uh, so committed my life to him and uh, was actively involved in our youth ministry at church. Uh, going out in the streets and meeting people and talking to people, things that, uh, you know, sometimes as adults we look back and say, did I really do that? (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I had a great uh, great high school experience. And then went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, right out of high school. And it's a very well-known American institution, really, when it, when it comes to studying theology, isn't it? It is, and not only is it a study program, but also it's a practical program right. where every student has two practical Christian work assignments where they go out in the community and work with young people or older people, mm-hmm. for that matter, people in jails and hospitals. So you get a lot of practical experience along with the biblical training. Very meaningful in my life. Mm. So uh, I guess right from an early age, you knew that you'd accepted Christ. Like you say, you made that personal decision for yourself. Have there ever been moments in your journey where you've, you've doubted or you've uh, backslidden or things have gone wrong? Or has it been quite a sort of straightforward journey from an early age? You know, I think uh, in my college years, I went from Moody Bible Institute to Wheaton College after that. And I think uh, I really wrestled with the philosophical questions, you know, that you have as a young person growing up and came to the conclusion, you know, boy, I'm on the right track and I'm going to stay on this track. Uh, and uh, But from that juncture on, you know, I, I've really just followed God's plan and patterns for my life. Did you feel like you had a, a kind of calling from quite early on? I mean, not everyone would choose necessarily to go to a, a Christian institution and to and to study it in, in that way. Where do you think that, that came from? Did you identify that from quite an early age? Yeah, I think uh, in high school, actually, uh, I had the real sense that God wanted me in some kind of full-time ministry. 
And I only knew there was two things you could do. One would be a pastor, and one would be a missionary. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like snakes, so I figured— <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. I'm not a fan at all. I figured I should be a pastor. Right. But by the time I finished Moody, I was really leaning toward missions right? because I realized uh, the tremendous need around the world. Oh. And so when I went to Wheaton College, I majored in anthropology the study of cultures, Mm. with the idea that I would be working in another culture. Uh, Eventually, God closed that door for us. but uh, and so I ended up being a pastor. Right. Uh, but, but you I, wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to be a missionary. <laughs> and here's the interesting thing: my books are now published in 50 languages around the world. So some time ago, I, I was sitting opening up some books from other countries, and my wife was on the couch. And I noticed she was crying, and I said, uh, "Carolyn, what's wrong?" And she says, "Nothing's wrong. I just remembered we wanted to be missionaries." And now your books are all over the world. <laughs> so that's when you realize that often God's plans are better than your plans, yes. and they're bigger than your plans. So you weren't going to be a missionary, although, as you say, the books did get translated, <laughs> so perhaps in some ways you are. You went towards more the, the pastoring kind of route, did you, after studying? Yes, after, uh, after Wheaton College, I went to seminary and did a master's degree and then a Ph.D., and I've been working in the same church now for 47 That's years. That's incredible. <laughs> a, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians will kind of, you know, jump, sometimes for good yes. reasons, sometimes not, from, from church to church. I imagine it's not easy to stay in the same place for that long in some ways? Or, or? Well, actually, it has been easy. Right. You know, I've worked with three senior pastors, and I've been an associate pastor all these years. Uh, for 10 years, I invested energy in college ministry and started our college ministry, and then turned that over to another staff member and started a single adult ministry. Did that for 10 years, and since then I focused on couples in the church. But uh, along with the educational aspects, I have always been involved in counseling, working primarily with marriage and family. Yes. You've already mentioned your wife. I'd love to know the story of how the two of you met. We actually grew up in the same church. In high school, I dated her best girlfriend. (laughs) In fact, we double dated sometimes. No way. And uh, when I went off to uh, Moody in Chicago, my my girlfriend broke up with me. She said, Chicago's long ways away, and, you know, I think we need to go our separate ways. So three years later, when I went home, I was home, and I went to church, and I saw the lady that's now my wife, and I thought, wow, how did I miss her? <laughs> and that began a two-year letter correspondence right. before the days of computers, yes. okay? And uh, after those two years, when I finished uh, Wheaton, uh, we got married, and then we went to seminary. Wow. What a wonderful story. It's so funny that, you, like you say, you were double dating. And uh, <laughs> you ever wonder, you know, what? What could have what could have been if if that I don't happened? I don't go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably best. That's probably wise. So uh, so so tell me then about this this concept that you're now so well known for the concept of love languages. For those who haven't come across it before, what are the what are the five love languages and where did this concept come from? How did you discover it? Well, I'll give you the five love languages first. Five fundamental ways to express love emotionally so that you're meeting that deep emotional need of the other person to feel loved. One is words of affirmation. You look nice in that outfit. Thank you very much. So do you. <laughs> you know what? Words of affirmation is actually my love language. All right. So you're spot All on right. there. Thank you. Okay. That means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so words of affirmation and then uh, gifts. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. The gift says, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. 
And then there's acts of service, doing something for the other person Mm -hmm. that you know they would like for you to do. Mm -hmm. In a marriage, that would be such things as cooking meals, washing dishes, vacuuming floors, washing cars, changing the baby's diaper, (laughs) just doing things for your spouse. All the unglamorous jobs. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You know, there's a saying that says, actions speak louder than words. It's true if this is your love language. Actions will speak louder than words. And then there's quality time, giving the person your undivided attention. It may be sitting down and having a conversation with them. It could be walking down the street together and talking. It could be sharing experience together that you both enjoy doing. But, it, but they have your attention. And then number five is physical touch. And we've long known the emotional power of physical touch. In a marriage, there would be such things as holding hands, Kissing, embracing, the whole sexual part of the marriage, arm around the shoulder, you know, uh, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And the basic idea is that out of those five love languages, each of us has a primary love language. One of them speaks more deeply to us emotionally than the other four. And uh, it's very similar to spoken language. All of us grew up speaking a language with a dialect, and that's the one we understand best. We call it our native tongue. So I grew up speaking, as I said, English, Southern style, <laughs> and uh, that's the language I understand best. So love is it's very similar. Uh, we each have a primary love language, and in a marriage, seldom does the husband and wife have the same language. Mm. And by nature, we speak our own language. Yeah. So if, if words is my language, I will just by nature give my wife affirming words. Mm. You know, you look nice. I really yeah. appreciate it. I love you. But if that's not her love language, and her love language, let's say, is acts of service, and I don't ever do anything to help her, she's not going to feel loved. Mm. And she will say to me eventually, you keep saying, I love you, I love you. If you love me, why don't you help me? (laughs) (laughs) So learning how to speak the other person's language is the key to having a a long-term healthy relationship. Absolutely. It happened with me and my wife. So my wife's primary love language is uh, gifts, is presents. And I hadn't realized that. And like I say, my, my love language is more words. So I yeah. could say all the nicest things to her. But actually, I've, I sometimes joke I've drawn the, the short straw because you know, she has the love language that actually costs money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you point out in your book, though, I think quite helpfully, it, it, you shouldn't necessarily think of if, if the person you're with, its primary love language is, is present. It doesn't necessarily have to be expensive, does it? Absolutely. Uh, you can pick up a flower in your backyard yeah. and just take it in like a child does and yeah. say, honey, I love you. Yeah. I saw this out there. I wanted to be. And you point out in the book that that often what's happening, as you say, it's very rare for a couple to have the same love language. And sometimes it's it's just worth sitting down and and understanding what the other person's love language is. And it can really enhance the relationship. And you have some incredible stories, actually, of people really on the brink of even divorce, who when this concept is explained to them, they then begin to understand one another. They they both begin to appreciate the other person's language. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, you know, I do uh, marriage seminars in America on Saturdays, a Saturday seminar. And we may have anywhere from 500 to 1,500 who, who attend these. And throughout the course of the day, almost every Saturday, I'll have half a dozen, sometimes a dozen couples that will come up to me and say, three years ago, seven years ago, five years ago, we were next door to divorce. We thought we can't go on. We're both miserable. And someone gave us a copy of your book. We read it. And the lights came on. And we looked back and realized how we had missed each other. And we took the little quiz in the book, and we learned our love language. 
and we started trying it, and it literally saved our marriage. Wow. It's so encouraging when yeah. I hear stories like that. In fact, even last night, uh, I heard stories like that when I was signing books after mm. I spoke. Yeah. Uh, couples who came up and said the same thing to wow. me. So it's very encouraging. Yeah. I guess it begs the question, is this something that you've discovered that just exists, that almost God has built into relationships? Or is this something that you've invented, something you've come up with? i tell you how I discovered it. I'd been counseling for a number of years, and over and over they would sit in my office, and one of them would say, I feel like he doesn't love me or she doesn't love me. And the other one would say, I don't understand that. I do this and this and this. Why would you not feel loved? And I knew that couples were missing each other, Mm. and I knew there had to be a pattern to it, Mm. but I had no idea what it was. So eventually, I took time to sit down and read several years of notes that I made when I was counseling people and asked myself the question, when someone said in my office, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. And I later called them the five love languages. And I started using this in my counseling and helped them discover each other's love language. And then uh, I would say, you know, I want you to go home and I want you to try this. Sometimes they would come back, Sam, in three weeks and say, Gary, this is changing everything. I mean, the whole climate's different now. Mm. And then I started using it in small groups, and the same thing would happen. And probably five years later, I thought if I could put this concept in a book, write it in the language of the common person so people can easily understand it, maybe I could help a lot of couples I would never have time to see in my office. Mm. Little did I know that the book would sell now 12 million copies in English and be translated and published in 50 languages around the world. So it's been super encouraging to see how God has used this to help so many couples learn how to effectively communicate love to each other. Given the the spread of this, you mentioned so many different languages, so many people picking up this book. Um, We should say, obviously, that that the influence of this particular title, this particular concept, is far beyond just those who go to church or call themselves Christians. Did you have that in mind when you were writing the book that you wanted those who don't share your faith to still benefit from this way of thinking? I did intentionally because I recognize that marriage is the central unit of society. If we have healthy marriages, it's the best environment in which to raise children. It's a healthy thing. And so I wanted to influence not only Christian marriages, but those who are not Christians. And so I I wrote this so that non-Christians would understand the concept and could apply the concept in their life. I knew that Christians would recognize that all these languages are illustrated in the scriptures, to be sure. Uh, So they're they're biblically based. But I I wanted the non-Christian world to know, I wanted to speak to this deep need that every human has. It's the need to feel loved by the significant people in your life. And when you do, Mm. when a child feels loved by the parents, the child grows up emotionally healthy. If the child does not feel loved by the parents, the child grows up with many internal struggles. And typically, in the teenage years, the child will go looking for love, typically in all the wrong places. So we've applied the concept. Originally, I wrote the book for couples. And then I wrote the five love languages of children, the five love languages of teenagers, same five languages, but helping parents effectively love their children. And I I typically say to parents, the question is not, do you love your children? 
The question is, do your children feel loved? Because you can be speaking love, and most parents love their children, but if you don't speak their primary love language, they may not feel loved even though you're loving them. There's been spin-off books. You mentioned you've done this for, for children. There's the five love languages for men, even for the workplace, for how you relate to colleagues. That's, a, that's an interesting one. How would you apply some of this thinking if let's say you have a really difficult boss who you're yeah. not getting on with and you're clashing, is yeah. there a way that we can apply some of this thinking to try and smooth out that relationship? Uh, yes, I think so. And uh, how this book came about is the five love languages of appreciation. We call it in the workplace, but we're just taking the love languages to work. Right. Uh, I had so many people say to me, I know you wrote your book for married couples, but I've been using it in my work relationships. And I would say, tell me about it. And they would give me their story. So eventually I teamed up with a a psychologist who had 20 years experience in business and we wrote this book, The Five Languages of Appreciation in the Workplace, because we discovered in America, 70% of the people who have jobs say that they feel very little appreciation coming from the people with whom they work. And 64% of the people who leave their job and go to another job say they left primarily because they didn't feel appreciated. And so we've had tremendous response to this. Uh, and y- the situation you mentioned where you're working for a boss that you, know, you don't have a good relationship with, if you can discover what his or her primary appreciation language is and you begin to speak that language, it changes the relationship. Because again, all of us need to feel appreciated in the situation where we work with people. Mm. And so when you speak their language, emotionally they're drawn to you. And the relationship does change. Mm. Now, if you can get the whole work group to read the book or take the take what we call the Motivating by Appreciation Inventory, which each book has a code and you get a free online assessment, which tells you what your primary appreciation language is at work, what your secondary appreciation is, and what the least important is. And so if you have that information, the least, you're not getting much out of doing the least, okay? But you speak those other two, and it's going to change the climate in the workplace. How do you answer the objection that just says, well, you know, you're you're explaining to me how I can supposedly how this relationship with my boss can get better but what what's really going on here is i'm merely having to learn how they feel appreciated how does yeah. how does me making them feel appreciated help me what's in it for me <laughs> well you know uh it's more blessed to give than to receive <laughs> and the scriptures say we love god because god first loved us he initiated and in a human relationship someone has to initiate it if it's a troubled marriage or a troubled work uh, relationship, someone has to make the first step. Someone has to make the first step. To rebuilding the Why relationship. Why not you? Yeah. You know, and when you reach out to love that person, you touch them deeply emotionally, and chances are they will reciprocate in due time, and the relationship thrives. Mm. Uh, one of your books is called "God Speaks Your Love Language." which is a fascinating title. What does that mean? You know, so many people ask me through the years, what is God's primary love language? So I began to search the scriptures. I just went through the whole of the scriptures looking for ways that God expresses love. Mm. And I found he expresses all five of them, Old Testament, New Testament, just hundreds of examples of God expressing his love to us. And so my conclusion is God doesn't have a primary love language. You know, the scriptures say God is love. Mm. And all of these things are reflections of God's love. Mm. And uh, but I did study in that book uh, how people come to Christ, what we might call the conversion experience. How do you come to really put your faith in Christ? And often 
both in the scriptures and also church history and in the contemporary world, you can see a connection between the person's love language and the way they were drawn to Christ. For example, words of affirmation. My guess is that Martin Luther's love language was words of affirmation. You know, he was a devout person. He was trying to please God, trying to make sure he got into heaven. And he's working, you know, trying to do things. Mm -hmm. And he read in Romans, the just shall live by faith, Mm -hmm. not by working, but by putting your faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. And Martin Luther said, paradise broke in my soul. (laughs) It was the word of God that really spoke to him. And then when we become believers, we tend to express our love to God in our love language. So what did Martin Luther do? He gave words. He wrote commentaries. He wrote hymns. He wrote sermons. He wrote the 95 Theses. He, words flowed out of him. And so uh, it's very interesting mm. to, to study how people come to Christ. And it, it, it says to us, don't judge someone else who had a different experience than you had. Mm. Uh, because we all have different experiences, because God speaks to us in different ways to bring us to the cross, to Christ. And uh, so it's a fascinating study. Yeah. And as well with words and Martin Luther, when you said that, I have to confess the first thing that came to mind was was some of the pretty um, angry words of Martin Luther. He's quite famous for, for being very, very uh, strong on that. And, and it does strike me as well that it's a concept you picked up on where, so for me, my primary love language is words, which means that that's how I receive love from others when they say nice things. But the flip side of that, of course, is if I get criticism, yes. that can hit me particularly hard. So yeah. there's almost a kind of flip side negative angle to some of this. That's, is that worth being aware of as well? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. If you have a spouse, for example, or a child whose primary love language is words of affirmation, and you give them critical words, it strikes them at the heart. It really hurts them. Whereas someone else may just let the words mm. flow off. Yeah. Uh, And the same thing's true with gifts. For example, if you give a child a gift and then three months later, as a means of discipline, you say to them, I'm going to take this away from you for four days. That is huge discipline for that child. That is deeply, that child deeply feels that. Whereas another child, no big deal. Or let's say quality time is the child's love language. And your primary method of discipline is you put them in their room by themselves and say, go in your room until you learn how to be quiet or you learn how to do this. And they go, and they go in there, and they're in pain. You take another child and you put them in the room like that, they go in there and play. They have fun. It doesn't bother them. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really important to understand that the negative expression of a person's love language will hurt them deeply. Mm-hmm. Has anyone ever come up to you and said, oh, oh Gary, you're missing one. I've discovered the sixth, <laughs> or actually there's seven or there's eight. I have had that. One man told me, he said, Dr. Chapman, there's a sixth love language. I said, what is it? He said, chocolate. <laughs> I said, well, if they bought it, it's a gift. Yep. If they made it, it's an act of service. Okay. <laughs> and then one guy said, uh, the sixth love language is going shopping with my wife. I said, well, to me, that sounds like a dialect of quality time. Right. She wants you to give attention to her while she does something she enjoys doing. So uh, I really haven't heard a six love language that I really feel is a valid. I'm not saying there's not. I'm still open to that. <laughs> but I haven't discovered one yet. I can't think of one either. I think of, I, I tend to think of dialects, like you just say. You mm-hmm. say every love language has a dialect. Yes. So what would be some of the dialects of something like 
acts of service? Acts of service? It would be uh, the different things that you do. For example, for me, my wife really, really appreciates it when I vacuum the floor. Right. And when I take out the trash and when I wash the dishes. Those are three biggies for her. Now, there are other acts of service that I do for her from time to time, but those are the three biggies. They're those, the ones those, that matter the most. Those are right. her primary dialects yes. you know, in which I speak that And language. I guess you only find that out through asking the other person. You do, yes. You can't yes. guess it yeah. to a certain extent. And I suppose with all the love languages as well, it, you, it's not always obvious, is it? You, you kind of have to take the test or you have to have a conversation. You wouldn't yeah. just naturally know, oh, that's that person's love language. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, we do have a free quiz, 5lovelanguages.com, the website, number 5, 5lovelanguages.com. There's a quiz for married couples. There's a quiz for single adults, a quiz for uh, teenagers, a, a quiz for military couples because wow. I have a military version of wow. this. And... Uh, uh, it'll help you uh, mm. just answer the questions and it'll help you discover what your primary love language mm. is. Now, I hope you don't mind me saying, but you uh, just celebrated your 80th birthday, I believe, earlier yes. this year. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank and you. And you clearly showed no signs of slowing down. <laughs> you're here in the UK, you're speaking. Um, what's the what's the future hold for you? You you seem to really enjoy, you know, continuing to tour the world with this with this concept. Well, you know, people ask me what I would like to do if I retired. And I say, I'd like to do what I'm doing. <laughs> I love what I do. I've worked on the same church staff now for 47 years, Incredible. and I'm still working on that staff. I'm officially part-time now yes. because I do a lot of traveling. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I love what I do, and, and I feel like as long as God gives me energy, I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing. Mm. And I tell God, Anytime you're ready for me to stop, I'm ready to stop, you know. But as long as you give me energy, I want to yeah. do that. And to me, that's, that's the goal in life mm. is simply to accomplish what God has in mind for you. Mm. And I don't know what God has in mind in the future. Maybe, maybe bigger things than I've experienced in the past or maybe pain and suffering. I don't know. Mm. But it's in his hands, mm. and we can rest assured he's going to do what's good. Mm. How would you describe your calling? I think it's a calling uh, that developed over the years. Uh, the, the specific area of calling in marriage and family is that I saw so many marriages hurting and people divorcing and children affected negatively by that, that God just gave me a passion to mm. try to help couples have the kind of marriage they wanted to have when they got married, which is a loving, supportive, caring relationship that satisfies them. And that's not the end. But when you have that kind of marriage, the two of you can then turn and bless the world. I'm Sam Hales, and you're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. It's the show where we sit down with a different Christian each and every week and find out a bit more about their life story and their ministry. My guest today is Dr. Gary Chapman, the author of The Five Love Languages. That's the book that we've been discussing and all the various spin-off resources as well. Really enjoying what Gary has to say this afternoon and really enjoying his accent as well. So do stick around. There's loads more coming from Gary Chapman right after this. Christianity Magazine, in this month's issue. I've only ever been told two things about sin, says Nick Page. It's bad and don't do it. In the latest issue, he shares seven helpful tips on how to stop sinning. Liz Carter explains how she's learned the secrets of contentment, despite many years spent suffering in hospital. Pete Gregg, the founder of the 24-7 prayer movement, teaches us to pray. And Joshua Harris tells us why he's pulping his best-selling Christian book. 
Plus, we talk to the Christians who are deconstructing their most cherished beliefs as we ask the question, can faith survive doubt? For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit, Premier Christianity Magazine. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest edition, just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We will send you the latest issue completely free in the post, no strings attached, so why not request one? You've got literally nothing to lose, and you never know, you might enjoy some of the articles we're putting out. We've got interviews, we've got features, reviews, columnists, including N.T. Wright, uh, writing for us, and loads, loads more. Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But for now, it is time to get back to the interview of the day right here on the profile, Dr. Gary Chapman. He is the author of The Five Love Languages. He's a marriage counsellor. He's a pastor and loads more. In the second part of our conversation today, we delve into some of the wider issues related to really marriage, society, and we even touch on things like the Me Too movement as well. Without any further ado, here's the rest of my conversation with Dr. Gary Chapman. Do you think the culture has changed around marriage? You know, even in your lifetime, sometimes people will say, well, they're concerned that younger couples today almost don't have the resilience um, or the desire to work out some of their problems and divorce just seems like an, an easy option for some people. Is there any truth in that? Well, I think divorce has become easier. No question about that. Uh, however, I read a research just recently that said millennials are divorcing less often than are than are the older older adults. They're more committed to marriage. And and what I see when I'm g- giving seminars around America, is that couples who saw their parents divorce, are much more motivated to have a good marriage. Mm-hmm. They read books. They come to marriage seminars and marriage conferences, because they don't want to go through divorce. They know what they felt as a child going through all of that, and they want to have a good marriage. That may be one reason why. They're delaying marriage. Mm. They're waiting till they're older until they get married. Now, the flip side of that is, of course, we know that many couples now, much more common, are living with each other before they get married. And their idea is that if you try it out, then it'll be better when you get married. Mm. The fact is, most of the people who live together before they get married don't get married. They break up before marriage. Those who do get married, the divorce rate is higher than those who did not live together before they got married. So it may sound like a logical thing to try it out, but the fact is you cannot simulate marriage mm. because marriage is a commitment at the, at the heart of it. It's a covenant that the two of you make to each other. I'm going to seek your well-being throughout my life. You're going to seek my well-being, and that's what marriage is all about. Mm. It's, it's a husband and wife who are serving each other, trying to help them accomplish their, the purposes God has for each of them. Who are the people and what are the kind of books and resources that have most influenced your own thinking on marriage and relationships? Well, you know, I've read a lot of books on marriage and family through the years, and I have a, a, a weekly radio program myself in America, and so I'm interviewing people who have written books on marriage. So every week I'm reading books on marriage. <laughs> and, you know, I find that most of the time when I read a book, 
I pick up at least one idea that will help me in my marriage, hmm. and then I can pass it along to other people. That's why I encourage couples, read one book on marriage every year the rest of your life. And when I say read, I don't mean simply to read. I mean the husband and wife reads the same chapter this week. At the end of the week, we share with each other one thing we learn in this chapter that we think might help us. If you'd read a book every year like that, and then I encourage them every year, go to a marriage, some marriage event. It may be the marriage course, you know, that's uh, here in England, yeah, very popular. Yeah, Nikki and Lee, yeah. uh, based out of HTB, the marriage course. Incredibly popular, certainly in this country. All kinds of churches up and down the country will, will run that as a course. Uh, absolutely. So go to something like that every year. And it may be a one-day event, it may be a weekend event, it may be a course like that for several weeks, but every year you go to something on marriage and every year you share one book on marriage. Mm. If you do that, chances are you're going to have a growing marriage mm. and you're going to be better equipped to help other couples. And you know what I found, Sam? Couples who are struggling will turn to their friends and share with them long before they ever go see a pastor or a counselor. And I say to the couples, if you have some idea on how to help couples, you can help them long before they get desperate enough to go see a counselor. There'll be those who, who might be thinking, you know, all this talk on marriage is great, but I'm, I'm single. And you have written the five love languages for singles. Yes. So how on earth does all this apply to somebody who's <laughs> thinking, but I'm not even in a relationship? Yeah. Well, I wrote that book because so many singles said to me, I know you wrote your book for couples, but I read it. And it's helping me in all of my relationships. Why don't you write one for us? So I did. And I apply the concept to the single adult's relationship with their parents, with their siblings, with their college roommates, with their work associates, with their dating partners. So all of their relationships, uh, because it enhances any relationship the single adult has. And also in a dating relationship, uh, I explain in the book, that often we'd start dating because we have this emotional, what I call the emotional tingles for the other person. Sometimes we call it falling in love, and we get then obsessed with the other person. But the average lifespan of that experience that we call falling in love is two years, right. and we come down off the high. Mm. And so many times in a dating relationship, they will date for those two years. They have a really great relationship. Things really go well, and then one of them comes down off the high, before the other one does, and they feel like, ooh, I've lost it. I don't have those feelings anymore. And often that's when they break up the relationship. If they understand that it has a two-year lifespan, then you have to learn how to speak their love language. And if you do learn it, then you continue to meet that emotional need, mm -hmm. and you can make a decision about marriage, to marry or not to marry, on other things other than simply not having that feeling yeah. that you had before. But why do you think the feeling goes? Why didn't God create us so that we just permanently be on a high when we meet the person who we're supposed to be with? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> I think because at the very heart of the Christian message is that we are here to serve others. Mm. You know, Jesus said about himself, I did not come to be served, I came to serve. And that's the theme of the Christian life. We're here to serve others. And if, it, if we're just pushed along with our emotions, there's no effort in that. 
But if we have to learn and then have to choose to speak the language, it is an act of service to the other person. And I think, uh, I don't know, that, that's my thought yes. on why it's that way. Yeah, it's interesting this idea that might, that sort of feeling might last, I think you said, about two years. Yeah. I've, I've heard other people talk about, and I don't even know if this is true, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but sometimes you hear about, oh, the, the three-year slump or the five-year slump yeah. in, in marriages. Is, is that a... Is that a real thing based on the research you've seen, that, that there might be this sort of point where things suddenly get harder for a lot of couples? Uh, yes, there, there is research that, that would back up that idea. Often it's the seven-year area right. where people really get seriously right. in trouble. Uh, and I think that's because they come down off the high. Nobody tells them they're going to come down off the high. Certainly no one told me. And when I came down off the high, man, I was disappointed. Mm. I mean, I thought, man, I've lost it. I mean, I don't know what's happened here. And then our differences emerge, and we don't know how to solve conflicts because we never thought we would have any. And for me, and for so many couples, then you start arguing over things that you disagree on, and you say hateful words to each other. And before long, you don't even like each other, let alone love each other. And, and that's when you begin to think, I made a mistake. We're not compatible. It's never going to work out. Reality, there's simply two humans who never learn to respect each other as a human. Because humans always think differently, and they always have different feelings. And we have to learn how to respect the other person's thoughts and feelings, even if we don't agree with them, and then say, okay, so we differ on this. Now how can we solve it? And you spend your energy solving the problem rather than spending your energy trying to win an argument. Mm. I sometimes say to couples, you know, if you win an argument with your spouse, mm -hmm. They lost. Yeah. It's no fun to live with a loser. So why would you create one? <laughs> <laughs> You've written as well quite a lot on the topic of forgiveness. I'd love to hear some more about that. What, what is it about that topic that's, that's ignited so many thoughts from yourself? Well, I really believe that there's two essentials to long-term healthy relationships. One is we've been talking about, that is keeping love alive, meeting the emotional need for love. And the second is we have to deal effectively with our failures because none of us are perfect. Mm. And so dealing with failures involves apologizing and forgiving. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you'll have a long-term healthy relationship if you don't learn how to apologize for your failures right. and if you don't choose to forgive the person when they do apologize. And uh, I wrote a book called When Sorry Isn't Enough, uh, based on the concept that people have different ideas about how to apologize. <laughs> you know, uh, one, one parent taught their child to say, I'm sorry. And another taught their child to say, you know, I was wrong. I should not have done that. And another parent taught their child to say, how can I make it up to you? How can I make it right? And another parent taught their child to say, uh, you know, will you forgive me? I hope you'll forgive me. You could say that some parents have taught their children never to apologize, and those children have grown up to become politicians. <laughs> I don't know about the last part of that, but the first part is true. I'm joking, obviously. Uh, there are many great Christian politicians, and I'm only jesting, but sorry, do, do carry on. <laughs> we did find out in America that about 10% of the general population almost never apologizes for anything, wow. and most of them are men. Right. And my guess is they learned it from their fathers. Right who told them real men don't apologize. Or maybe their, parent, their father didn't say that, but they never heard their father apologize. So they have no model of apology. 
And I say to those guys, you know, your, your dad was probably a good man, but he had bad information. If he told you not to apologize, mm. it's bad information. Mm. Or if he didn't model it, then, you know, his parents failed to tell him. You have to apologize when you do wrong. Right, but there's if, different ways of apologizing. Different ways of apologizing, yeah. yeah. So I, I call them apology languages. <laughs> and so you have to learn what the other person considers to be a sincere apology. Right. And speak the apology in a language that, that they see your sincerity. Right. And are, are they linked to the love languages in terms of, you know, giving a gift could be one way of apologizing? Uh, I've never tried to make that connection. Mm. There may be a connection, but I haven't but tried different, to. So they're different la- languages for, the, for apology. Yes, yes. Now, uh, apologizing is only a part of the process. There has to be a response to the apology, and that's where forgiveness comes in. And forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. And it's the choice to pardon the person. I'm not going to make you pay for this the next 15 years. I'm not going to bring this up and hit you over the head with it. I'm going to pardon you. And I'm going to remove the emotional barrier between the two of us so that our relationship can go forward. Mm-hmm. It's the choice to forgive. We're doing for the other person what God did for us when we came and confessed our sins. And, of course, Christ paid our penalty on the cross so God could forgive us and still be a just God because our penalty's been paid by him. And so because we've been forgiven, mm-hmm. we choose to forgive the other person. And the forgiveness is an essential if you're going to have an ongoing relationship. If you're going to hold it against them and not forgive them, the barrier stays between you, even though they've apologized. Mm -hmm. It sits there. And until you choose to forgive, the relationship doesn't move forward. I can imagine, you know, many people completely understanding that, agreeing with that, and perhaps also thinking, well, how far do we almost take this concept of forgiveness? Are there ever instances actually where we say the marriage covenant has been broken and a person is not obligated to forgive. Yeah. Well, you know, the scriptures are very clear on this. If, if, if your spouse sins against you, or anyone else for that matter, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said you go to them and you, you share it with them. You, know, you confront them with it. And if they repent, he says you forgive them. If they don't repent, he says take someone with you and go back and confront them again. Uh, Hopefully someone that they trust and you trust. So you go together and you confront them. If they don't repent, then he says you tell the church. And the idea is the church will send somebody. And so you confront. And and then he says if they don't repent, he didn't say forgive them. He said treat them as a pagan. What do you do for pagans? You pray for pagans. You're kind to pagans. You want to forgive pagans. As soon as they repent, you'll forgive them. You see... When does God forgive us? When we confess our sins. God doesn't forgive everybody. God forgives those who confess their sins, acknowledge they need forgiveness. And so forgiveness is a response to an apology. And so people sometimes say, well, you know, I thought we were supposed to forgive everybody. Mm. Well, God doesn't. Now, I understand. I understand what pastors are saying when they say to a wife, for example, whose husband has been unfaithful to her. He's involved in an affair. And she's angry inside. She's getting bitter inside about it. She shares with the pastor, and the pastor says, you've got to forgive him or it's going to kill you. Now, I understand the pastor's motivation because he sees her eating up with anger. And, and, and the feeling of anger is not sin, but the Bible says don't hold anger inside because it becomes bitterness and it becomes hatred. And that's sin. Both of those are sin. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to help her get rid of the anger. But I much prefer to use the word release. 
release the person to God. Mm-hmm. Because if that, if that husband is still living in sin, God hasn't forgiven him. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking the wife to forgive him, right, yeah. to do something God hasn't done. But I say, release him to God. Put him in God's hands and release your anger to God. Mm-hmm. And when you put him in God's hands, you're putting him in good hands. Mm-hmm. If he repents, God will forgive him. And then you can also forgive him. If he doesn't repent, God's going to hold him accountable because God's the ultimate judge. And so you put him in God's hands, you release your anger, and you go on living your life following God. Uh, and so many uh, couples in that situation have said to me, particularly wives whose husbands have been unfaithful, Gary, that is so meaningful to me. It's helped me so much. I can release my husband. You know, I can do that. And I, I can release my anger to God, and I can go on now and, and live for him. And, and again, if you treat them as a pagan, you're praying for them all the time, and you stand ready to forgive them just like God does. And we should always have a forgiving heart. And sometimes people will say to me, Sam, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, how about Jesus on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They weren't repenting. They were killing him. And I say, read it again. It's a prayer, yeah. not a proclamation. He's dying so they can be forgiven. That's what he wants, and he's sharing it with the Father. And later on, you know, Peter preached to those same people. He said, you kill the king of glory, and he called them to repentance. And the scriptures say many of the priests believed. So those priests that were calling out for his crucifixion, they believed. That's when his prayer was answered, when they believed and they accepted what he did on the cross. So when you're counseling couples, do you really start with the assumption, I guess, that any marriage can be saved no matter what has happened in terms of wrongdoing on either side? Yes, I think the assumption is that the potential that that marriage can be not, mm. not just saved, not just salvaged, but can, be, can thrive. Yeah. But I'm fully aware that it takes two people to have a marriage. Mm. And one person can be seeking God and doing everything they can. The other person refuses to do anything. And one person cannot salvage a marriage uh, if that, but, but yeah part of the reason i asked that question i guess is just the kind of cultural moment we're in at the moment particularly around a lot of people rethinking our understanding towards um, marital marital abuse yes, uh, yes sexual abuse yes, that sort of yes. thing and, and i think there's a feeling amongst many that will say well actually for it, there could be a scenario where for your safety yeah this can no longer continue yeah well what i say is this there's certainly a place for tough love which may involve separation Okay, which says to let's say the husband's abusing the wife. She says to him, I love you too much to sit here and do nothing and let you destroy me and our kids. I'm going to move in with my mother or I'm going to do this. And so I'm not abandoning you. If you deal with this, you get a counselor, you deal with this, then we can talk about marriage counseling and we can see what can happen. But I love you too much to sit here and do nothing. So, yes, there is a place to take that action. When there's physical abuse, sexual abuse of children, that sort of thing, yes, separation can be an act of love in that situation. And it may or may not lead later on to, to reconciliation. But uh, you can't sit there and let, us, let a husband uh, abuse children, for example, sexually, or abuse you physically. Uh, that's not an act of love. An act of love does something to change the situation. And I guess on an even bigger picture than that, how should Christians understand the current moment we're in that's sometimes referred to as Me Too, where we're we're seeing what appears to be very widespread, awful 
abuse, either historically or currently. What is, what is the Christian response to this kind of cultural moment that we're in? Well, I think we have to be open. We, I think we have to be open to uh, women, uh, girls, young or old, who have been abused sexually by men. And I think we have to stand up for what is right and what is just. And whenever a person has abused children, for example, you know, uh, younger children, uh, we, we, can't, we can't in any way condone that. We have to stand against that. And I think it's always been there to some degree. It's that now it's becoming more public right. because many of these women are speaking up and speaking out about what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously people, women can use this as a tool against a man I mean, women can make up stuff that really didn't happen. You know, that's always a possibility. So I think we ought to... How widespread a possibility do you think that is? I guess that's the question, isn't it? Because yeah. some some people seem to be saying, well, some people would be very reluctant to even say what you've just said yeah. because they'd yeah. say this is such a minimal problem. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you know, our culture, and I don't know where England is, but mm. in, in America, we are at the place where we're not only an argument culture, where we argue with each other, but we're getting to be a place in a culture where if we disagree with somebody, we want to destroy them. And we want to do something to make you lose your job, for example. And, and so we, we're, we're, that's where we are. We're, 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 we're trying to destroy the person we disagree with. And this is a tool. This right. could be used as a tool right. you know, to, to, to diminish some, somebody. Uh, I'm not saying that that's widespread. No. I'm just saying that's always a possibility. A possibility. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So... Um, Coming back to some of your story, I'd, I'd love to know in your many years of ministry, what's been the best day of your your life, your ministry, and what's been the worst day? Oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't think of a particular day, but I tell you one of the things that brings me great joy mm. is we have two children, both of whom are grown, both of whom are married. They have good marriages. Mm. Uh, my daughter has two grandchildren, my two grandchildren, and all my, all my kids, all their parents and my grandkids are all walking with Jesus. You know, there's a little verse in Third John that says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Hmm. So it brings me great joy to know that my children are both passionate for Jesus and my grandchildren are passionate for Jesus. It's just great satisfaction to me. Now, there's a lot of other pleasures that I have in life in, in terms of helping people and seeing marriages saved and all of that. Uh, but just personally, that's mm. very meaningful to me. Mm. The worst day of my life, uh, oh, I don't know. I guess at the time I would have said the day my wife sat me down and said, I just talked to the doctor and I have cancer and I have to have surgery. <sighs> And I'm taking a deep breath and saying, oh, I mean, you know, you, I've walked with many other people who've had cancer, mm-hmm. you know, in the church. But when it's your spouse, it hits you deeply. And so immediately I said to her, Carolyn, I'm going to cancel all of my speaking engagements for the next year and I'm going to be here with you. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and said, you are not going to cancel anything. You are going to do what God's called you to do and what he's put before you. You'll be here when I need you, and I have plenty of friends. If you're out of town, I have friends I can call. They'll be here in five minutes, and you're not going to stop anything. And I took a deep breath, and I said, okay, Carolyn. Wow. Okay. And I was there at crucial times, you know, 
And she walked, it was a horrible year. Sure. I mean, she lo- took the chemotherapy and lost her hair and lost her energy and couldn't do anything. But we're grateful. She's fine now. That was six years ago. Yeah. She's strong again, and she's got her energy, and she, yeah. you know, she's cancer-free at the moment. What an amazing testimony. I mean, not just for, for you, but, but for her to be able to say that. To yeah. you. I mean, for you to be willing to lay that down, but yeah. for her also to be willing f- to release you in that way. Yeah. Incredible testimony. Yeah. So in a sense, I would say that was a, maybe one of my saddest days because I got that news, and maybe a happy day at the same time mm. because of her attitude. Mm. You know, yeah. pretty amazing. I was going to ask you actually what, what sort of steps you've taken to safeguard your marriage, and, and I guess you've already partially answered that with a with a answer like that, and being willing to lay down your ministry for yeah. for your wife. Um, is there ever a sense of pressure though, because you're known as this person who, who you know <laughs> counsels other marriages, who helps other people? Is there ever a pressure of I've got to make sure my marriage is absolutely rock solid here? Well, you know, years ago my, when I started writing books, and my wife and I agreed that if we're going to help people. We've got to be honest about our own marriage. And so in my books and in my speaking, I talk openly about our struggles in the early years of our marriage and the things that we had to work through. And so we've tried to be very open and very transparent with people. And I've found that people really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Because if you get up there and just give principles and ideas, they're sitting out there thinking, yeah, but he doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. But when we share and I share, you know, our struggles and all, People say, oh, oh, I guess he has been there. I guess he has felt that. Uh, so we tried to be really, really open mm-hmm. about that. And, 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 and I've never said that we have a perfect marriage. <laughs> you know, two humans are always going to have conflicts that you have to work through, you know. But I'm glad that we finally learned how to work through those conflicts. Yeah. And we still have conflicts because we still disagree on some things from time to time. Yeah. But uh, we've learned how to look for solutions when you have conflicts. Mm. And we've learned how to accept some things about each other that are not going to change. There's just some things that won't change. And so you learn how to accept those things. Mm. Is there a lesson in there for those who regularly speak, for preachers who regularly preach, to be honest in the pulpit? I think so. I think the more pastors can be honest about their own journey, and whatever they're preaching on, whatever the topic, be honest about where they are and where they have been in the journey. And it's not just that all the problems were in the past, you know, not now I'm perfect. <laughs> no, but you share, you share your own struggle with those mm-hmm. things. And I think people identify with that. Well, Dr. Chapman, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you come in today and to share your work um, with us and, you know, the, the many topics that you've written on and spoken on. Thank you so much for sharing. Where can people go if they want to find out more about what you're up to? They can go to 5lovelanguages.com, the number 5, 5lovelanguages.com. Uh, they can discover a little snippet on all of my books. They can download my radio programs of, of, that, I, that I do uh, where I'm interviewing other people that have written books on marriage and to find out uh, what's going on in my life. That's great. Well, Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for coming in and spending time with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Sam. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio this Saturday afternoon. It's been great to have you with us. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly did. 
Don't forget, there's loads more interviews just like that one available on The Profile podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from and you can download past episodes. We've spoken to all kinds of people here on the show, well over 100 different interviews available on The Profile podcast, so you're sure to find at least one or two that you might be interested in. If you are currently listening to this as a podcast, thank you so much for accessing the show this way. We would really appreciate it if you could rate us, review us, and also share the profile on social media, email, just send it to your friends, anyone who you think might be interested. It really helps us get the word out and it allows us to continue to put out this content completely for free in podcast format. So sharing it really does help. Before we go, just a reminder that you can get that free magazine. If you go to premierchristianity.com, just click on get me a free copy, fill out your details and we'll put it in the post to you. It's as simple as that. Why not go ahead, request a free sample copy of the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine, premierchristianity.com. We will be back at the same time, same place next week.